If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open one with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. Gospel of Luke and chapter 21. We're picking up where we left off in the Gospel of Luke that we've been journeying uh, through for the better part of two years. Uh, we took a little break for Christmas, three-week break, but we're back in Luke 21. Lord willing, this will take us uh, through the spring, and then we should uh, be through this gospel. But today, Luke 21, 5 through 28 is where we'll be. It'll be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. If you want a scripture journal and you don't have one, uh, there are some on the welcome desk. Feel free to go grab uh, one of those now or after the service. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. The Holy Spirit says, through a doctor named Luke, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, Jesus said, said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be, over, be thrown down. And they asked, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Verse 10. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out of the country enter in. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days... For there will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Verse 25. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things began to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Amen. This is God's word, and may God write eternal truths in all of our hearts. A nice and breezy text for the end of the year, right? It is difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. So said 20th century philosopher and baseball catcher Yogi Berra. Making predictions is a precarious thing, isn't it? The president of Western Union said in 1876 that the telephone 
has far too many shortcomings to be taken seriously as a means of communication. He said it has objectively no value. In 1903, Horace Rackham, the original stockholder in Ford Motor Company, said the automobile is a fad, a novelty. Horses are here to stay. In 1946, film producer Daryl Zunick said that television won't be able to hold on to any market it captures after the first six months. People will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. Marty Cooper, who built the first cell phone, said in 1981 that mobile phones will absolutely never replace the wired telephone. In 1995, Robert Metcalf said, I predict that the internet will go spectacularly supernova, and in 1996, it will catastrophically implode. Writing an anti-internet article for Newsweek in 1995, Clifford Stoll said, Do our computer pundits lack all common sense? The truth is, no online database will replace your daily newspaper. He followed this by saying, Try reading a book on a disc. At best, it's unpleasant chore. The myopic glow of a clunky computer replaces the friendly pages of a book. And you can't tote that laptop to the beach. Yet the director of the MIT Media Lab predicts that we'll soon buy books and newspaper straight over the internet. Uh, sure. Expressing doubts about the viability of YouTube, its founder, Steve Chen, said in 2005, I don't know, there just aren't that many videos I want to watch. I could go on for another half hour listing off a litany of failed predictions that experts have given over the centuries. What we wouldn't give to know the future. What would you pay? to know what lay ahead of you tomorrow or the next day or the next month or a year. We know that the future is uncertain, but that doesn't stop us from predicting what will happen. And inevitably, we'll get many, if not most, of our predictions wrong because we simply cannot know what lays ahead. In some ways, we can't really blame those who gave the false predictions I mentioned. They were working with available evidence that they had and were in some ways just limited by their imaginations. But all of us, don't we, look back to actions in our lives and conclude that we would have done this or that differently if only we knew what would happen. This is why we would do almost anything to know what lays ahead of us. Then we might change how we live, for our decisions would take on a different meaning knowing the effects that they might have on our futures. But what if you can know the future? And what if you could know where everything is heading? And what if there was someone who was more accurate than Nostradamus who predicted what will happen with startling accuracy? Would that affect how you live? Would things change for you? As we return to our study on the Gospel of Luke, we drop back in with Jesus where we left him, firmly in Holy Week, having rebuffed all the religious leaders and their sad attempts to trap him and him teaching the Gospel day by day in the temple. And the text where we're picking up with sees Jesus making predictions about the future, both within the generation of those who heard these words from his lips and to the distant future that lies ahead, even you and I. Now, last week in our final message from John's prologue, we looked at the trajectory of Jesus' ministry. And so today, I want to keep the trajectory theme going with three points that speak to the trajectory of three things that are addressed in our text. And I'll give them to you straight away, okay? Here's our three points. Point number one, the trajectory of the temple. The trajectory of the temple. Point two, the trajectory of the disciples. The trajectory of the disciples. And point three, the trajectory of the world. 
trajectory of the world. So point one, the trajectory of the temple. This will be our longest point. Once Our scene opens in verse 5 with some likely disciples expressing admiration for the temple and its beauty. It could have just been, you know, a casual mention of how exquisitely adorned it was in the way that you might have seen some beautiful building or some beautiful scenery and say out loud to your companion, isn't this a lovely place? And the disciples would be right. The temple at this point was truly a remarkable place. Now, this temple, of course, is the second temple. The first one was built, if you know your Bibles, under the kingship of Solomon, and that had been destroyed in the late 500s BC by the Babylonians who carried off many to captivity. Now, when they came back, the remnant came back, the second temple was built under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, again, if you know your Bibles, you know this was not received well by the people who lamented that it was not as glorious as the first one. Now, we get in our time machine, we jump forward to the reign of King Herod the Great, who decided to expand that temple to two times its original size in order to gain favor with the Jewish populace. And this is the one that the disciples are looking at in our text. Now, this temple that Herod expanded ended up being 500 yards by 400 yards. And the refurbishing that was started under Herod lasted from 19 B.C. to about 63 A.D. And so it was, in some sense, still under construction in this scene in Luke's Gospel. It truly was a marvel of the ancient world. It had white marble stones that were up to 67 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. It had silver-plated gates and gold-plated doors. One of the gates was so large that it took 20 men to open it every morning. First century historian Josephus said that the building's gold plates flashed in the sun like a snow-clad mountain. Another historian, Tacitus, called the temple immensely opulent. Now, all that to say, the disciples were correct, weren't they? The temple was truly a magnificent structure worthy of their awe. But instead of saying, yes, you are correct, it's very beautiful, Jesus reminds the disciples of this sobering truth. What's he say in your text? As magnificent as it might be, it is temporary. For in the days to come, it will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another, says Jesus, which is not literal, but is just an idiom for total destruction. And history vindicates Jesus' words for the temple would indeed be destroyed in less than 40 years from when he first uttered this. In fact, Jesus' words were shockingly accurate because he says in verses 20 through 24 that the entire city would share the fate of the temple when Titus Caesar's army would surround the city. And those who fled into the city rather than to the hills would end up meeting a horrible fate at the hands of the Romans. Jesus' prediction and description sounds grim, does it not? And that's because it is. In fact, history tells us that some 500 crucifixions took place a day in 70 AD. So many crucifixions were carried out, in fact, that it was said that they ran out of wood. Jesus is making clear to the disciples that they should not be overly impressed with the temple's grandeur. For, as impressive as it was, it is temporary. It is beautiful, but in time it will be dust. The things that they, are, they see are not permanent, nor even God's blessing eternally upon that building as some supposed. It, it's really difficult to overstate how jarring 
this declaration by Jesus would be to these first hearers. That Jerusalem and the temple particularly were the center of the religious and economic life of the nation. The center. There was no more important place or structure than the temple. Everything for the nation revolved around the temple because it was the place that God was thought to be dwelling. It was where they gave their offerings. It was where they made their sacrifices. It, it was where they observed so many of their rituals and festivals like their ancestors did before them. So to hear about the impending doom would be a shocking thing indeed. I mean, now this isn't quite the same level, but imagine if you went to Washington, D.C., and you took a tour, okay, of all the most important structures. You, you see the White House, you see the Library of Congress, you see the Capitol building, you're marveling at the significance of them, the impressiveness of their structures. Think about how, what kind of important things took place there, right? You're remarking to your fellow tourists about their splendor. And then your tour guide, after describing every building and its importance, interrupts by saying, yeah, but it'll all be, eventually be destroyed. What would you think about that? And what if he said, he followed that by saying, you know, America is powerful as impressive as it is. It won't be around forever. Wouldn't that be a startling thing to hear? Especially standing right in front of those buildings, how would you react? You know, maybe after you phone the FBI and you give the tour guide a one-star Yelp review, you'd start to think about what a terrible thing it would be if he were correct. But why is Jesus saying these things? Why is he saying that the temple is on borrowed time? Well, because it is. Well, why? Why would God allow the temple to be turned to ashes? Now, the reader of Luke already knows why. You think back to Monday of Holy Week when Jesus went to the temple and he drove out the money changers. He declared that the religious leaders and the people had turned the temple into a den of robbers. And remember, he was quoting Jeremiah 7 when Jeremiah also went to the temple and he said that the people had lived daily lives that lacked justice and they took advantage of the vulnerable and they worshiped the Baals and they stole and they murdered and they lied and they committed adultery. And then they went to the temple and they said, the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord, thinking that the temple could be their safe haven after living a functional life of wickedness. Divorce from a love of God and neighbor. You remember that? That they had thought that religious ritual would keep them safe from God's judgment. And it didn't matter what they did in their day-to-day -day lives. As long as they did their religious duty at the temple, all would be well. Not so fast, said Jeremiah. Not so fast, says Jesus. But for Jeremiah, he was calling them for repentance and to amend their ways. Jesus was declaring a cessation of temple activities. F.B. Meyer said, there was an evident divorce between religion and morals, and whenever that comes into the life of a nation or an individual, it's fatal. Satan himself has no objection to a religion which consists in postures and ceremonies and rites. And that's the kind of religion that they had. So when Jesus went and did what he did on Monday, he was doing more than flipping tables and quoting a prophet. He was declaring the end of the temple. It had outlived its usefulness. It had forsaken its purpose. And thus, it was not a house of prayer for all nations, nor a place where people offered true worship to God. It was a safe haven for a people who had forsaken God and had presumed upon grace. James Edwards said it this way, like a once healthy system of cells that has become malignant, the temple has forsaken its intended purposes. People had presumed upon grace. And as we've seen, God is patient, yes, 
God is kind. He's abounding in covenant and love, but his patience doesn't last forever for those who abuse grace and break the covenant as they have done. So his judgment was coming upon them, and he was going to use, like he did with the Babylonians, a wicked nation as his instrument. That's why, look at verse 22. Jesus says, days of vengeance. Verse 23, wrath against this people. Because God's judgment was going to come upon this privileged people who had continually rejected him, rejected his Messiah, and abused both the temple and their neighbor. Now consider that in light of who we've seen Jesus was as described by John's prologue the last couple weeks. The temple was to be where God dwelled in the midst of people, yes? How does John describe Jesus? As preexistent God who took on flesh and tabernacled among us. Don't miss this. Jesus is the truer, better temple. Jesus is God in the midst of people. Jesus is everything that the temple was meant to be and accomplish. He was God in their midst. He was the true Passover. He was a true sacrifice. He was a true Sabbath. He was a true offering, the true feast and festivals. Everything the temple was to be, Jesus fulfilled in his person. So what use was there of a temple then? Things were changing. The grace in place of grace that we saw from John 1 was being enacted in Jesus in that the grace of God dwelling with a special dwelling in the midst of this one nation was being expanded to a greater grace wherein he would dwell wherever one gave allegiance to Jesus. It would be, you know, you remember Paul on Mars Hill? He said that, God would not dwell in temple made by human hands. People no longer would need to make a pilgrimage to dusty Middle East to visit a temple where God's special presence would dwell. So where do we go? Where do we go to visit the special dwelling on earth? The temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, right? It hasn't been built ever since. And even if it had, God would not dwell in it for it's been replaced with what? Jesus' physical body and now Jesus' church which is his spiritual body. When Jesus ascended into the heavenlies and took his seat at the right hand of the Father, you know, something else happened, didn't it? The Holy Spirit descended to indwell those who would give their allegiance to Jesus, but, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, God's special presence is in his church, which is the temple of God. But why? How? Because the Spirit Holy Spirit dwells amongst and in and through people when they gather, like we're gathering, in Jesus' name in a way that cannot be found anywhere else. Well, what's the trajectory of the temple then? It will be destroyed. That's very clear by these words. History vindicates this truth. But Jesus is the truer and better temple. And his plan for all time, for the temple of God, once he ascended, was to be his church which is indwelt with the Spirit of God in the same way that we see him dwell in the tabernacle and temple of the Old Testament. Do you want to experience the special presence of God that you cannot get anywhere else? Do you want to go where there is a manifestation of God is uniquely present? I have good news. Okay? You don't need to break the, open the pocketbook to fly across the pond to the Middle East. You simply need to look no further than the local church. If it is a true church, that is. And here's the thing about what Jesus is saying, right? He was correct. And we, we look back and we see the temple with its grandeur and its splendor and beauty is now nothing but dust and a memory. 
you know, here's the thing about your unhinged DC tour guide, right? He'd be right too. Because eventually, all the beautiful buildings and important structures in our countries will be gone. In fact, eventually there will be no America. Even if that be something that's far off in the very distant future. Because no country, no organization, no institution is promised an eternal future, no matter how seemingly blessed it is. But there is one institution that is promised to last forever. What is it? It's the church. Everything else will crumble and fall, but not the church. You, you don't believe me? Why don't you look back at the quarters of history? You see how many great and marvelous nations there have been? Was Rome not one of them? And they seemed like they would never fall. Where are they now? Look back and see how many great buildings and magnificent structures have been built that eventually crumbled. And look back and see how many wicked people have tried to snuff out the church in the last 2,000 years, and what do you find? Who's still here? The church is still here. Those nations, those magnificent buildings are a memory left to history books and footnotes. John Piper said this, the church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, the children of God are more significant in world history than any other group, organization, or nation. The United States of America compares to the church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun. The drama of international relations compares to the mission of the church like a kindergarten riddle compares to Hamlet or King Lear. And all the pomp of May Day in Red Square and the pageantry of New Year's in Pasadena fade into a formless gray against the splendor of the bride of Christ. He said, take heed how you judge. Things are not what they seem. The media and all the powers and authorities and rulers and stars that are present are a mirage. The gates of Hades, the power of death will prevail against every institution but one, the church. So how important is the church? If, if it is the now and forever temple of God, if it is where God's presence dwells in a special way, how important is it? Can it be merely shrugged off as another civic or social organization? Yet another club or voluntary organization? Something we are free to treat cheaply or irrelevant or unnecessary? Something we would throw into our busy schedules when we have time? Something we think we should be ordered around our whims, whimsies, and preferences? Or... Should it, we give it the weight that it deserves as the temple of God that Jesus has designed to be his outpost, his assembly, his embassy on earth? Friend, everything you see in the world, no matter how marvelous, well-loved, or important, it will eventually be dust. You spend great time to earn money, to buy splendid things, and they will eventually be gone, relegated to maybe a memory. Even this building will one day be dilapidated or destroyed, but the church, it will still exist, and it will exist into eternity. The second temple, it was indeed splendid. I've been where it once sat, and it's not there anymore. It's gone. It's not coming back. But it's not needed, for God has a better temple in mind. The church, the body, the bride of Jesus Christ, made of every tribe, people, nation, and language. Do you treat and view it with
with the gravity that it deserves. But for time's sake, we must move on to our second point, point number two. The trajectory of the disciples. The trajectory of the disciples. The disciples ask, as you probably would, as I would, when these things will take place and what signs they should look for. Jesus tells them, look, look at your text. He tells them what will not signal that these things are about to take place. What will not signal that these things are about to pl- take place. Such as, look again, claiming that they are about to happen or that there are wars, or that there are natural disasters. In other words, when you hear people claiming that the end is near, what should you do? Not listen to them. You and I know that there have been people that apparently don't know that this verse exists, who have constantly been predicting the end of all things for the last 2,000 years, and they have all one thing in common. What is it? They've all been wrong. Jesus explicitly tells us on multiple occasions, do not give ear to people who point to current events and claim that this is a sign of the end. Disciples need discerning ears and shouldn't give in to end time speculation of prognosticators and grifters. There is too much to do that Christ actually commanded for us to allow ourselves to be distracted by giving over to speculation and pontificating. Of course, we're in, of course we're in the end of the days. We've been in them since the first Christmas. That's the point. <laughs> and just because we see wars and division and natural disasters doesn't mean the end is coming in our time. It might, but it also might be a thousand years off. We don't know, and it's futile to speculate. Things happen in a fallen world, don't they? They're going to be messianic pretenders. They're going to be wars. There's going to be earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes. And Jesus is saying, don't be surprised or disturbed. There might be chaos, says Jesus, but God isn't surprised. He is sovereign. He is over it all, and all of it serves his purpose. So why waste time being anxious and nervous? Why waste time seeing if your Bible matches up with the headlines? Your task, says verse 19, is to endure and be faithful. And those other things can distract from patient endurance and faithful service. You know, I came across a website just this week that has news stories, and every headline has a verse of Scripture attached to it. And back-to-back on this website, it had a story about weather events and then one about an asteroid that's going to pass Earth in, like, 2029. Signs of the end, they say. But, I mean, who cares if an asteroid passes the Earth? You know, whose asteroid is it? That's God's asteroid. (laughs) Who controls it? God. You, You know who decides where it will go and what it will do? You know who controls waves and seas and storms and winds? If God is sovereign and you are his, what in the world are you worried about? Like, what does speculation like that get you? What are you going to do? Are you going to go stop the asteroid? you going to turn into Ben Affleck circa 1998 and go land on that thing and blow it up as Bruce Willis takes his helmet off and turns into a cosmic popsicle? God is sovereign. You are his. 
He rules with meticulous providence. His Christ is on the helm of the universe. And all of history is bending towards Jesus' forever rule where all things will be made right. So why are you getting yourself in a tizzy over things you can't control? What you can control is how you live in this world. And you should live in the world as a follower of Jesus who lives for him and trusts him come what may. You see what Jesus says in 10 through 19? He says wars, famine, natural disasters, end time speculators. These are not signs of the end. But what will happen in this age is that followers of his will suffer. They will be hated. They will be rejected. In other words, they will be like their savior. If you are to be a follower of Jesus, expect to be hated. Expect to be mistreated and misunderstood. Expect to be rejected and understand that following Jesus is not easy. Jesus is no seller of spiritual snake oil, nor does he resemble prosperity preachers of our day who make it sound as if being a Christian is nothing more than praying a prayer followed by a triumphalist street party where you have your best life now and every day is Friday. Jesus is honest. Following him costs. The servant is not greater than his master. Jesus was hated, yes? Jesus was misunderstood. Jesus was rejected too. You see the startling thing that Jesus says in verse 13? This is something you need to mark up and memorize. He says we should see such hardships as an opportunity to be a witness for him, to those who hate you, to those who are watching your life. He says you'll be mistreated on three levels. Do you see it? Religious powers, secular powers, and even by those closest to you, your friends and family. And so when that happens, you need not be shocked. But you must see it as an opportunity to be a witness to the hope that you have in Christ. Now, we don't need to only think of persecution here, okay? We should apply these lessons to any kind of suffering that might befall us. And we should remember the following truths and such hardships that Jesus says here. Any kind of hardship. One, every hardship is an opportunity to be a witness and give testimony to Jesus. And verse 15, two, Jesus will be with us in the midst of them all. So we don't merely have an opportunity to be a witness. We have an opportunity to rely more on Christ as our only hope and stay, as the old hymn says. All other ground is sinking sand. This is something we all need to remember, all of us. To ask ourselves when suffering and hardship befall us, which is inevitable in a life like this, whether mistreatment from people or from ordinary suffering that come with a living in a fallen world. We need to ask, will we use them to make us better or worse? You see what Jesus doesn't say, nor does any apostle when talking about suffering in the New Testament. He doesn't say, do your best to get out of the suffering and trials, does he? He doesn't say to come up with a way of escape. He asks, in essence, how will you leverage them for your good and God's glory? Too many Christians waste their trials. 
they become not better people, but worse. They become navel-gazing and complaining. They lament, not with biblical lament, but with a woe-is-me sort of lament that merely bemoans that such hardships should befall them rather than doing what biblical laments actually do, which is look towards God and rest in his sovereignty. Tim Keller in his book, I would recommend anybody read. It's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He says the stakes are high here. Suffering will either leave you a much better person or a much worse one than you were before. Those who work harder to manage their pain than to confront and learn from their suffering can become bitter and hopeless. So the wrong strategy will usually mean that one's character becomes weaker and less integrated while the right approach to suffering can lead to remarkable growth. Listen to this. Trials and troubles in life which are inevitable will either make you or break you. But either way, you will not remain the same. You know, some of you might remember the movie Superman 3 with Christopher Reeves. You guys remember that? Nope. Which I've mentioned this scene before, okay? So you should at least remember that and my repetitiveness. Superman crushes a piece of coal in his hand, okay? And when he opens his hand, it's a diamond. So this led to, like, countless people believing that diamonds come from coal, which they don't, okay? But, you know, something fascinating is that coal and diamonds, something ugly and beautiful, are both made from the same basic element, which is carbon. And they need to, you know, to make a diamond or coal, you have to introduce them to incredible amounts of heat, incredible amounts of pressure. But to turn carbon into coal, you must introduce impurities. So both diamonds and coal are made from the same basic element. Both are exposed to immense pressure, but one is ugly and one is beautiful depending on the amounts of impurities introduced. That's the same with trials, isn't it? Either, as Keller said, they will make you or break you. One thing they will not do is leave you the same. The choice in trials, whether in persecution or in suffering, the pain of health diagnosis, relationships, splitting asunder, the loss of loved one, financial strain or depression and the like, is what will you do with them? Will we come out the other side as someone who has given a testimony to those around us about the hope we have in Christ? Will we come out the other side as someone who's been driven further into the arms of Jesus? As an opportunity to see how inadequate we are in ourselves and thus driven to rely on Jesus' sovereign arms. My friend, do you use your hardships as an opportunity to point people to Jesus? Do you use them as opportunities to grow in your reliance on him? So you and, you and I may never be taken before religious and governing authorities in our lives to answer for our gospel allegiance. But the first disciples were, weren't they? And how did they respond? Once again, Jesus' prediction is spot on because we see all throughout Acts the sort of response devotion to Christ got them. And yet, the disciples said over and over again, we will continue to preach. And over and over again, they called even their captors to repentance and faith in Christ. Luke tells us in Acts 5, after the apostles were arrested, beaten, warned, don't preach about Jesus anymore, this is what it says. They went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now, maybe you won't face that. 
we should never be surprised if the culture in which we live is a godless one that rejects Christ. Should we be surprised by that? People who don't have Jesus act like people who don't have Jesus. That we should lament the fallenness of our culture, but we should neither be surprised nor forget that lamentation only gets us so far. And how we respond in the midst of a fallen culture matters. Carl Truman, in another excellent book I would recommend called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, said this, Lamentation is a popular in many conservative and Christian circles, and I've indulged in it a few times myself. No doubt the Ceseronian cry, oh, the times, oh, the custom, has therapeutic appeal in a therapeutic time like ours. Whether it's a form of Pharisaic reassurance that we're not like others, or as a means of convincing ourselves, they have the special knowledge that allows us to stand above the petty enchantments and superficial pleasures of this age. But in terms of positive action, lamentation offers little and delivers less. Every age has its darkness and dangers. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. Responding appropriately means holding fast to the truth and enduring and being able to do that while loving enemies. To be able to hold intention rejecting and rebuking sin without compromising and loving people in the way that Christ calls us to. We don't match, my believing friend, vitriol for vitriol or hate for hate. We aren't to be hated because we're insufferable, rude, or mean. But verse 12, for Jesus' name's sake, our attachment to Jesus, our insistence on the truth, our unwillingness to forsake allegiance to him, must be why followers of his are hated. The disciples of Jesus should live with a distinct life that is peculiar. A life that is otherworldly and strange to those who don't know Christ. It is therefore attractive and different. We should live such lives marked by allegiance to Jesus that those around us should be able to note the difference. To fail to live as Christ calls would be for our unbelieving friends and family to look and say, your life is no different than mine. We must be a people marked by Jesus and his ethic to which people could tell that we're living for a different country. The trajectory, what's the trajectory of the disciples? Is rejection and hatred by the world, even those closest to us. But the trajectory is also vindication, isn't it? Look at what verses 17 through 19 say. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, hold on a second. How can being a disciple potentially lead to beatings and death, but not a hair on our heads will perish? Well, it reminds us that God is sovereign even over our sufferings and persecution. God will not allow a hair to fall from the head of his children apart from his will. But the sense is also that those who hold fast to Jesus even in the face of hatred from family, will be vindicated in the end. They will live eternally in God's presence. They will not ultimately perish. The trajectory of the disciple is suffering, yes, but it's ultimately vindication. Those who hold fast to Jesus will be held fast by him. No suffering for him will go unvindicated. And we think of his promise that even kin will hate or reject us, and it reminds us. That when we decide to become a disciple of his, we need to count the cost. 
we've seen from other places in Luke that familial rejection is one of the reasons that some hesitate to follow him. I've seen it. Maybe you have too. And some who follow Jesus will compromise the ethic of Jesus in order to appease their family or justify and accept sin in order to be accepted. And I've seen that too. But Christ says that holding fast to him must be the priority of the disciple over everything, even family. It might cost, but it's worth it when in the end you gain Jesus. Says Daryl Bach, to cease to trust Jesus is to never have trusted him. To cling to Jesus is to have life even in the face of death. Finally, let's consider our third and final point. Point number three, the trajectory of the world. We see this in verses 25 through 28, the trajectory of the world. Here, Jesus turns his attention to the end of the world. So while verses 5 through 24 addresses the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, as well as the disciples' hardship before, during, and after those events, now Jesus jumps to the end of the age. What will that be like? Well, while Rumors, while wars, natural calamities, persecution, and things like this will be part of what it looks like to live in a fallen world. And those things happen in all different locales at all different times with different intensities. The end of the age will be unmissable, unmistakable, and cosmic. That's what we see here, right? As we noted, for the last 2,000 years, we've had pontificators see some war, see some natural disaster, some great loss of life, some big event, and ask, is this it? Is it the end? Or, you know, some big news story happens, and we need to rush to the TV or open a phone to look up and see what happened. We ask our friends, did you hear about this or that news story? Well, the end of the age and the coming of Christ to bring the kingdom in fullness will absolutely not be like that. No one is going to ask, is this the end? No one is going to need to turn on the news to see it reported. There will be absolutely no doubt that Jesus is here and that the end is nigh. It will be unmistakable as a lightning flashing across the sky. It will further be comprehensive. It will involve sky and sea. Even the created world will react in the end. People will overcome with fear and helplessness. This is what we see in our text. They'll have nowhere to hide and nowhere to run. Their judge has come, and he comes to bring the end of all things and bring the eternal new heavens and new earth where everything will be made new, where everything will be made right. That's what we see here. And for those who don't know Jesus, when this happens, who haven't given him allegiance, we are painted a bleak and terrifying picture. And indeed, it is. But what, what about those who do have, who, who have given their allegiance to Jesus? How should they react? It tells us, doesn't it? Verse 28. Straighten up. Raise your head. Why? Because your redemption draws near. Do you see it? In contrast to the fear and dread, believers are to stand up and lift their heads when Jesus comes riding on the clouds because they know he isn't vanquishing them, he's liberating them. So they welcome him with rejoicing. That's quite a different reaction, isn't it? You know, Del Ralph Davis tells of how in the early stages of what was called the Market Garden Offensive in World War II, British troops started to drop onto Dutch soil and began something of an invasion. And this created quite the stir among the Hollanders. 
a young woman named Angie Van Manen recalls receiving a phone call from some friends telling her that English troops were like dropping into their backyards and, and heading her away. Well, she put the phone down and then the house became crazy with joy and her response was this. She said, an invasion, how lovely. You know, we don't typically think of invasion as lovely, but if your land and people had been under the thumbs of Hitler and his legions for four years, such an invasion would mean liberation, which would be a cause of rejoicing and would be indeed lovely. So too, the coming of the Son of Man for those who are his. Because it means liberation. It means vindication. It means that it is time for the kingdom to come in fullness and the end of all things means the beginning of an eternity in the presence of our triune God where every sad thing will come untrue. The trajectory of the world is that it will eventually be a memory. One day, this is not what our Lord is telling us here, one day creation itself will signal that time is short. And the mixing of the temple's destruction and Jerusalem's overthrow in 70 AD with the talk of the end of the age is that while things that happen on a daily basis in this world, like wars and nature uprising and people hating the gospel and hating God's saints, false prophets with their errant anti-predictions, don't tell us that the end is here. They're to remind us that the end is coming. And rather than invoking some angsty panic or anxiety or prognostications, those things should evoke us to keep our eyes on Jesus and at the task at hand. We should not then see wars and weather events and wring our hands and say, look, now is the time for the end. We need not waste our time making charts and graphs and seeing if we can align our Bible with the headlines or listen to those who do. What are those things if not ways to get us off the task that we have been assigned? which is to continue to be faithful witness to Jesus as we cling to him and trust in his sovereignty and goodness and call perishing men and women headed for a crisis eternity to allegiance to Christ. That's what calamity should drive us to. And they should remind us that life is short and that the world is heading to an end so there's no time to waste. Klein Snodgrass wisely said, an understanding of the gospel that does not include the future, is not the Christian gospel, and is insufficient for dealing with the problem of evil. At the same time, Christians must avoid any fascination with and speculation about the end. The wise and faithful Christian is the one who understands the significance of the end and actively serves whether the time is long or short. The trajectory of the world is that it will end to make way for a better permanent world. This means the trajectory, listen, the trajectory of all people is to stand before Christ at the end of the age. Which means everyone has a choice. When you stand before Christ, which you will, will he be your judge or liberator? Will that be a day of rejoicing for you or will it be a day of dread? And my Christian friend, here we stand at the end of another year and at the doorstep of a new one. What will happen in 2024? Do you know? What, what will happen in 2025? Where's the world heading? 
we know to a day when it ceases at the hand of Jesus, are you living in light of that? Are you striving towards faithfulness? Are you living with Jesus holding your supreme allegiance? Are you trusting in him and risking for his truths, even if it costs you? Now, all of us, you know what we're going to do today and tomorrow? We're going to look back at this past year and say, boy, where'd all the time go, aren't we? And we're going to move on as if nothing happened. But shouldn't we allow that to remind us that we're but a vapor instead? And that we stand on the brink of eternity? Are, you, are any of you making New Year's resolution for this coming year? You know, many resolutions are commendable, aren't they? They fizzle out by February, but they're commendable. But typically, they focus on this world, don't they? This body, this life alone. Can I suggest some? Can I suggest some different ones? You can't say no, I have a microphone, okay? Here's some better ones. Resolve to live for Christ more than ever before. Resolve to live in light of eternity. Resolve to live as if this world were not your home. Resolve to contend for the gospel. Resolve to give your life away to the kingdom of Christ. Are there better resolutions than those? You know, texts like this should wake us up and remind us where everything is heading. It should recenter us for we could be easily distracted. It should give us hope knowing that this world is temporary and that all of it is heading in the direction of the eternal Christ who holds all things in his hand. 